I just want to begin our time in prayer. Um, John, our pastor John is having back surgery on Friday, and so I, I thought we could just start out by praying for him. Pray, pray with me. Father, we come to you now asking that you might teach us something in your word and might shape us by it. Father, help us to see your sovereignty and supremacy even amid um, the turmoil and suffering of our lives and of the world. Father, we pray for for John um, as he undergoes surgery. We just ask that you would protect him and you would correct whatever problems there might be in his back and bring him back safely to us. Father, I confess um, my utter reliance on you, and so I pray that um, Lord, you would be with me in every word, every breath, moment by moment. Father, speak now to your people uh, in spite of me, and speak to me also. Father, I pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Um, I don't know about you, I'm not super into March Madness, but I did catch part of the game last night. I know this is a, a touchy subject. Um, but I, I saw enough to see the crying Northwestern kid. Have you heard of this? It's this big meme on the internet. You can look it up after the service, of course. Um, and I just want to say, I'm not going to make a joke. I just, I just want to say, we've all been there. Okay? Um, you know, like we'll see in this passage, bad things happen. Bad calls are made. Um, but there is hope. There is hope. It is coming. So after a four-week hiatus, we are uh, continuing our series through the book of Revelation. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. That's Revelation chapter 13. If you would, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? It's long, but we're going to read the whole chapter. Okay, you with me? Verse 1. Chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can stand against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous names, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before in the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. 
It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for understanding. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Thank you. You may be seated. So when I was first asked to preach on Revelation a few months ago, I leaped at the opportunity. Um, But after a few hours set in, I thought, oh no, what have I done? Revelation is... I can't preach Revelation. So many different views, so many different interpretations. One preacher called the millennium a thousand years of peace Christians like to fight about. And I have no intention this morning of bringing any controversy into this church body. But Revelation is a strange book, and in a way that's unavoidable. I think it's safe to say if anyone, your average person, if they know anything about Revelation, it probably has something to do with the mark of the beast or the number 666. So I just want to clear the air here, okay? There's been a lot of speculation about the identity of the Antichrist. Some have said it's the Pope. Some said the Soviet Union. Some said Ronald Reagan. Some said, and, and still say, uh, Barack Obama. More and more people, day by day, are saying it's Donald Trump. Some people have said Walmart, because, you know, if any corporation is the Antichrist, it's probably Walmart. Um, But can we all just admit right now, that's all ridiculous. No, the Antichrist is not the Pope. No, it's not Donald Trump. Walmart probably is not the Antichrist. (laughs) No, I think we all know who the Antichrist really is. Okay? It's Steve Jobs. (laughs) Okay, listen. Hear me out. Exhibit A. Think about the logo. Think about Apple's logo. It's an apple, right? It's an apple with a bite mark in it. Now, why would Apple use the logo if it were not a reference to the fall of man when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden apple? Okay, not convinced? Just wait. Exhibit B. In 1976... The first Macintosh computer, the Apple I, went on sale at the retail price of, you guessed it, this is true by the way, you can can look this up, the retail price of $666.66. Think about it. Okay, but just wait, it goes even deeper than that. Exhibit C. So in verse 16, it talks about um, the mark on their wrists and their foreheads. Think about Apple Watches. How many people in this very room are wearing Apple Watches? 
The beast is among us. But that, wait, wait. You might think, well, Sam, what about the foreheads? I'm glad you asked. Let me demonstrate. How many parents here look at their kids and see something like this? The logo on their foreheads. What? It's right there in the text. Okay, Microsoft fans are like, yeah, we've been saying this for years. Now you might say, like, Sam, isn't Steve Jobs dead? Didn't he die six years ago? Exactly. Six years ago, in verse three. Verse three, it talks about like this this mock resurrection. Okay, so I'm predicting right now, on October fifth, two thousand seventeen, exactly six years after Steve Jobs died, he will rise from the dead and establish a one-world empire. Just wait. Okay, so we can all admit that's insane.、Um, no, I'm not seriously suggesting Steve Jobs is the Antichrist. What I'm trying to do is. Dispel any preoccupation we may have concerning the identity of the Antichrist. Ultimately, John did not write this letter in order to inspire a Left Behind series one day, or a movie with Nicolas Cage.、Um, he wrote this letter to, to first-century churches and church leaders who were experiencing suffering and persecution and difficulty. So, whatever this says about the future, whatever this says about today. My aim this morning is not to answer every question we may have concerning the symbolism of this text. Ultimately, you do not need to know who the Antichrist is. Ultimately, you do not need to know when the beast will come. But you must know who you will worship, and by what power you will be preserved from deception, even amid suffering. So, what does this passage say to us this morning? It says this: Despite all appearances, God remains on His throne and is eternally with His people, even as they experience unbearable suffering. And I pray the Spirit will apply this word to each of our lives in unique ways. But I think the main call of this passage is for believers to endure suffering by trusting in Jesus. Let's endure suffering by trusting in Jesus. And in order to see that this morning, I think we first need to look at the utter hopelessness in which God's people find themselves, whether in the first century today or in the future. So first, we're going to look at the two beasts, and then we're going to look at the hope we have in the Lamb. So let's turn to the first beast. This is verses one through seven. The first beast shows us. That God's people sometimes are assailed by arrogant, violent men. So, just to recap from、uh, four weeks ago, in chapter 12, Tim led us through、uh, this cosmic battle between Michael and Satan and the dragon, and it ultimately results in the dragon's defeat. And then, the enraged, the dragon pursues the woman who stands in for the people of God, and she's delivered. And then the dragon. Um, it says in verse seventeen, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
and he stood on the sand of the sea. So chapter 13 is the continuation of chapter 12. It, is, it describes how the dragon makes war on the rest of the woman's offspring. Chapter 13 is about Satan's war on the people of God. So Satan, imagine, Satan stands on the shoreline. He's looking out towards the sea, and as if to conjure up this demonic, arrogant, ruthless henchman, he conjures up this beast. And you'll find I'm a fan of alliteration, and so in order to look at this beast, I, we're going to focus on, on six A's. Um, those are his arrival, the beast's arrival, appearance, um, authority, acclaim, arrogance, and aggression. So first, the beast arrives out of the sea. Now, in that time, the sea was, um, it sort of stood for this uh, chaotic, primordial abyss that was associated with evil. So this beast is evil. It's like the embodiment of evil. Okay, second, the beast's uh, appearance is described in verse 1 as having ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Okay, stop. What does that mean? Well, I think what's important here for us is the beast is so closely associated with the dragon that it's almost identical. So you look back in chapter 12, and the beast, the dragon is described there as having uh, seven heads and ten horns. And then you fast forward to chapter eight, uh, 17, and it says in, um, in verse 3, um, that the beast was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. So this dragon, this beast, is the representative of the dragon. It's the image of the dragon. And it's described here in verse, tw- in verse 2 as like a leopard, having feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. And that may not mean much to us, but it's, it points clearly back to Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel 7... Daniel sees this vision of four beasts. And the first is described, they're all coming out of the sea, and the first is described as a leopard, and the second as, um, or the first is a lion, the second is a bear, and the third is a leopard. And then the fourth is sort of this amalgamation of all three beasts before it. And what's important is Daniel himself interprets these beasts as this successive line of empires that most people think represent Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then finally Rome. And so by drawing from Daniel 7, it seems like John is, is using the beast as a representative, as a picture of, of Rome, or at least some kind of imperial power like Rome. So the beast here seems to represent whatever imperial state sets itself up against God and his people. Third, the beast receives authority. Now, back in Daniel 7, these four beasts, they exercise some power, and then the Ancient of Days comes and defeats them. Like, it's not even close. And then the Son of Man, he comes to the Ancient of Days and receives this eternal, uh, universal kingdom. He receives all authority. But here, in verse 2, it seems like the, the dragon gives a throne and authority to the beast. 
It's almost this reversal of Daniel 7. And so what I want to get in your minds, it's a usurpation of Christ's authority. The beast takes what rightfully belongs to Christ. Fourth, the beast receives universal acclaim. Again, the beast takes what rightfully belongs to Christ. You know, back in Revelation 7, John, um, Jason led us through um, this sort of picture of people from all peoples and nations and tribes and languages praising the Lamb. Universal worship. The, the Lamb deserves universal worship. He is deserving. He is worthy of their praise. But here, in verse 3, the whole world worships the beast. It even offers false liturgy in verse 3. Um, who is like the beast? Who can stand against it? And the expected answer, of course, is no one. No one can stand against the beast. So why do they worship the beast? It's because in verse 3, the beast parodies Christ. One of its mortally wounded heads is healed remarkably. And so this, just think of this beast as a false Christ, a false lamb, a false son of man. But he doesn't just receive these things, he also acts in these certain ways. And so, fifth, the beast acts arrogantly. It spews forth blasphemy against God's name, against God and his people. Now, I think John has in mind a lot of the emperor worship that was going on at that time. If you're very familiar, um, there were, there were um, Roman cults at the time that were sponsored by the state. And so on one of his coins, a Roman emperor Nero declared himself the savior of the world. And then another emperor, uh, Domitian, he demanded that everyone refer to him as our Lord and God, right? So clearly these, this is pretension. It's arrogant blasphemy. And I think that's kind of what, that's what we see the beast doing, exalting himself over God. But the beast doesn't simply act arrogantly. Sixth, he acts aggressively towards God's people. Verse 7, it makes war on the saints and even conquers them. Now think of Daniel here. Again, we're going back to Daniel. Daniel was a book written to a community in exile. They were in Babylon. And the first part of that book is it describes event after event of God preserving his people through suffering, through persecution. The classic example is uh, Daniel 3. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he erects this golden image to himself, and he demands that all people worship it on punishment of death. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they refuse to worship the beast, or they refuse to worship the image. And so they are taken, and they are thrown into the fiery furnace, and there God preserves them and eventually vindicates them over their enemies. Now think with me, if, imagine with me if Meshach, Shadrach, and Mingo were not saved. They were not delivered. They were thrown into the fire, and their flesh was consumed by the fire. And that seems to be exactly what we see in verse 7. This beast that sets itself up against God and makes war on his saints seems to win. It seems to beat the saints. It conquers them. 
So stay with me here. The beast usurps what rightfully belongs to Christ. It sets itself up against God and his people. It acts arrogantly, arrogantly blaspheming God's name and aggressively attacking God's people. And you're telling me it, it wins? Where is God in all this? Maybe verse 4 is right. Maybe we should say, who is like the beast? Who can stand against it? Maybe you felt that question before in your own life. You think, God, where, where are you? Where are you in my life? Where are you in this world? Where are you in northern Iraq? Where, where are you in Chicago? Where are you in my grandmother's dementia? In my, in my child's Down syndrome? In my failed marriage? In my depression and loneliness? God, where are you? Can't you see we're hurting? Can't you see your people are dying? Do you care? I think chapter 13 should show us it is abundantly clear that we are not, that we are not immune to suffering in this life. Despite what we might tell ourselves, despite all our, all our money, all our insurance policies, all our safety deposits, all our health clubs, all our socioeconomic privilege, we are not immune to suffering in this life. If Revelation 13 tells us anything, it is this. We are not guaranteed in this life deliverance from suffering and defeat. We are not guaranteed in this life suffering uh, deliverance from suffering and defeat. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. God's people sometimes are assailed by arrogant, violent men. So let's turn to the second beast, verses 11 through 18. The second beast shows us that God's people sometimes are beset by beastly, despotic deception. Now, I'm sorry, I don't have any great alliteration here. Um, I have my limits. But let's focus on the second beast's appearance, on his deception, propaganda, and coercion. So first, verse 11. It describes the beast as having two horns like a lamb and the voice of a dragon. And what's important here is that this second beast masquerades as a lamb. And yet, in reality, it speaks the voice of Satan. Most people think that this is referring to some religious power. It's a religious authority that gives religious sanction to the gross injustices of the first beast, the imperial state. This image, um, it is, it does this even by, um, it convinces the world to worship the first beast even by um, giving signs and wonders. So the beast, second, it deceives the world. It makes fire come down from heaven in front of people. What, what you should think of here is Elijah and Elisha, two Old Testament prophets who called down fire from heaven. So this is, a, this is imitating Old Testament prophets. 
So you should think this second beast is a false prophet that prepares the way for a false messiah. It is a false prophet that speaks as a prophet of Satan. And in a way, it's even a false Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit, Spirit's role is to convince the world to worship Jesus and it glorifies Christ, this second beast's role is to glorify the, second, the beast and to convince the world to worship it. So it's a sort of minister of propaganda in a way. Third, the first beast promotes idolatry. Again, it imitates the spirit by giving life to the image of the beast. This image speaks and it demands the death of all those who refuse to worship it. It demands total allegiance. Fourth, the, first, the, the false prophet coerces those who refuse uh, to worship the image. It marks humanity and financially punishes them, uh, anyone who refuses the mark. In chapter 7, God's people receive a mark in order that they may escape the um, coming of God's wrath. But here in chapter 13, people receive the mark of the beast in order to escape the beast's wrath against the church. And so what amazes me about both of those accounts is the um, is that both groups are defined in contradistinction from one another. In spiritual loyalty, in terms of spiritual loyalty, there is uh, unqualified polarity here. Either you can receive the mark of the beast, and in so doing, give your total allegiance to the beast, or you can refuse the mark and suffer loss and even death. So the big question is here, why does humanity worship the beast? First, I think there's two reasons. First, humanity worships false displays of power. Over and over again, the beast, uh, people worship the beast because it, it displays its power and it asserts its dominance over God's people. And I think if we're honest, we can see that same sort of worship in our own lives and in our culture. Second, people worship economic prosperity. Maybe the beast promises a stimulus package, maybe tax reform, maybe to lower unemployment. People worship prosperity and they'll support anyone who promises it, regardless of corruption or moral degeneracy. I was in Africa uh, recently and I saw traces of what I would um, think of as the prosperity gospel, that is a gospel that prioritizes health, wealth, comfort in this life to the exclusion of suffering. And I think we here in this room would be right to reject such theologies. And yet, I fear that such a theology has invaded our homes and churches far more than we would like to admit. Let's be honest, our views of safety and security in this room are far more American than they are biblical, far more concerned with the preservation of our lives and the lining of our bank accounts than with the exaltation of God's name among the nations. Even we worship economic prosperity. And even we are deceived by false displays of power. God's people sometimes are beset by beastly, despotic deception. And if Revelation 13 tells us anything, it is this. If we live as God's people, 
refusing to worship the image of the beast, we will suffer. We are guaranteed suffering in this life. If we refuse to worship the beast or any false power, we are guaranteed suffering in this life, even at the cost of our lives. So it's clear that God's people find themselves in an entirely hopeless situation. If they stay loyal to the Lamb, it will cost them. It will cost us everything. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus promises that in this world you will have tribulation. That is one guarantee Jesus makes to his people. In this world, you will have tribulation. And within 24 hours of saying that, he was arrested, he was tried, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross, humiliated, mocked, and died a slow, excruciating death. Our Lord suffered and died. Apparently, apparently abandoned or forgotten by heaven. Should we expect any different for ourselves? Now, are you, are you encouraged this morning? Amen. Imagine, it, imagine with me if that was the end of the sermon. Imagine with me if, if we prayed, the band came up, we started singing, how great is the beast? Who's like, like, worst sermon ever. But praise God, that is not the end of the sermon. Praise God, Jesus promises us tribulation in this world. But praise God, we have an unshakable joy because Jesus has overcome the world. In fact, Jesus overcomes the world precisely in that moment in which the world thinks it has him beat. Jesus triumphs through the cross. Yes, God some, yes, God's people are sometimes assailed by arrogant evil men. Yes, God's people sometimes are beset by beastly, despotic deception. But, but praise God, God, God's people always eternally are secured in the love of Christ. And if you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember these three truths. Number one, the beast's reign is limited. Number two, we worship the true God. And number three, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. First, the beast's reign is limited. The beast exercises authority, um, arrogantly blaspheming God and his people. Yet verse five he does this only by God's permission, right? God, his reign lasts only for 42 months. As Jason has said, there is an end date to your suffering. There is an end date to all suffering, and it is completely controlled by the hand of God. Remember the false liturgy? People are saying, who is like the beast? Who can stand against it? Well, guess what? The answer has already been given to that question. In chapter 12, it says in verse 7, um, Now war arose in heaven, and Mike, again, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And then in verse 8, But he, the dragon, was defeated, and there was no longer any room in heaven for them. So who is like the beast? 
And who can stand against it? He's already lost. God can stand against the beast. God has fought against it, and God has won against the beast. The beast is finished. Imagine if, if I play um, LeBron James in basketball, okay, and by, by some miracle, I manage to score a point, like one point, okay, and I go around saying, like, what you got, LeBron? You got nothing. Get my face. Like, no, Sam, dude, like, look at the scoreboard. The game's already over. You lost. Okay? It's, it's pathetic, these beasts. They've already lost. And secondly, like, as we'll see next week in chapter 14, whatever successes the beasts may enjoy in this world, they are short-lived. Right? Chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus is on Mount Zion. He is in complete control, and he is coming soon to set all things right. Christ, despite what is happening in your life, despite what is happening in the world, Christ is still on his throne and will return one day to set all things right. The beast's reign is limited. Second, we worship the true God. Now, in this passage, we see the sort of false trinity, a false father, a false son, and a false Holy Spirit. And I've kind of avoided it until now. Um, I think we, we should talk about it. It's the number, the number 666 in verse 18. Let me just say there's a lot of different interpretations here. Um, I don't think anyone really knows what this is referring to. This is my, this is my take on it. Um, you think of the number seven, right? It's a perfect number. It represents the ideal. And so I think six is something that falls short of that ideal. It's a number that represents imperfection. And so here, the, the beast is associated with this number, and so you have, you have imperfection three times repeated. So it's this, it's this idea of a, a trinity of imperfection. Now, if, if that's not convincing, maybe it's not, um, at least be convinced that our God is a true trinity, that it's not some imitation of the real God, our Christ is a true lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and raised to new life. Our Christ is a true son of man who will receive an eternal kingdom that's not limited to 42 months. We worship the true God. And third, if that's not enough, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Do you see that? It is because our names are written in the book of life that we are preserved from deception. We will not worship the beast because of that. He keeps us from falling for beastly deception. You know, and I know that we, there might be disagreement in this room as to what this verse means, but I think we should agree what, whether our names are written in the book of life um, by God's determination or his foreknowledge, in Christ, our destiny is life with Christ. That we are not, our names are not written in the book of death. They're written in the book of life, and our destiny, our eternal hope is with Christ. So we have an unshakable hope in Christ, even amid suffering and turmoil. 
And so we've seen that God's people are eternally secured in the love of Christ. Even even in suffering, we have hope because the beast's reign is limited. We worship the true God, and our names are written in the book of life. And the question is, what do we do with that information? And so I have two specific exhortations for us this morning based on Revelation 13. First, do not be, be deceived by false pretenses of power. Listen, let's not be delusional here. There is immense suffering in the world. Christians suffer and die each day for their faith, even though we insulate ourselves from it. Last month, Douglas Murray published an article in The Spectator where he documents the intense persecution of Christians in northern Nigeria. And each month, Christian villages are massacred there. And there seems to be no sign of it stopping. You know, three years ago, Boko Haram, they abducted 300 girls. You might remember this. And for a brief moment, hashtag bring back our girls trended on Facebook. But that moment passed, and over 200 of those girls are still missing. And atrocities like that happen every day. Like, we don't have to pretend these things don't happen. Okay, I read the news. I... I hear of Aleppo, I hear of kidnappings, I hear of shootings, I hear of bombings, I hear of beheadings, I hear of forced uh, trafficking and forced prostitution. Like, I hear of all these things, and I have to ask, where is God? But listen to me, despite all appearances, despite all the seeming success of evil and violence in this world, God remains on his throne and is eternally with his people Now, maybe that's easy for us to say um, with our Starbucks coffee and HBO subscriptions. But that is exactly the reassurance John gives to a suffering people in this letter. Christ is supreme, and Satan's rule is short. Christ is supreme over every government, every election, every army, every attack, every rape, every bombing, every kidnapping, every beheading, because he is our king. Peter Lightheart, he writes of Jesus' resurrection, and he says this, He is the new Lord, the new world ruler, the new emperor to whom all principalities and powers are called to submit. If his resurrection really happened, then the universe is being governed by Jesus, and there is no corner of the globe. There is no edge of the universe where he is not king. Nothing is outside his rule, and we have nothing to fear. Second, embrace suffering for the sake of God's glory among the nations. You know, we cannot talk about missions without talking about suffering, and we cannot talk about suffering without talking about missions. Those two are inseparably linked, and it's because God's people suffer in this world precisely because they share the gospel. And the gospel spreads in this world precisely because God, because God's people suffer. Today, over 2.6 billion people in this world are unreached by the gospel. That doesn't just mean they're lost. They're lost people in Chicago. It means they have no access to the gospel. They will live and die without ever hearing of the gospel. And if, in all probability, 
None of them ever will. They are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach. They're dangerous to reach. We're talking Boko Haram. We're talking ISIS. We're talking Afghanistan. We're talking Pakistan, North Korea, and Somalia. But Jesus deserves their worship too. He is their king too. And the church will never reach them with the gospel unless someone dies. If we are to reach them, we must embrace suffering and defeat and death. We will not see Afghanistan praise Jesus without it costing some of us our lives. Or at, at, or at the bare minimum, without it costing us our affluent lifestyles. I challenge every person in this room, the college student, the retiree, the young family with kids, do not start making excuses why God would not call you in this way. Do not put conditions on your obedience to Christ. Do not close yourself to the possibility that God may be leading you to take the gospel to those people in those places. Let us give of our lives, of our ambitions, of our time, of our prayer, of our 20s, of our 30s, of our 40s, of our 80s and 90s to see that the Lamb receives the full measure of his reward. And all through that, may we endure suffering by trusting in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we suffer and trust in things besides you. Forgive us when we fail to acknowledge you as king in our lives and in all creation. Help us, Father, to trust in you even in your silence. We praise you for your abundant grace. And we pray that it will sustain us even as we buckle under pain and suffering. Help us to remember your sovereignty over all things. And let that motivate us to give of our lives so that nations may be glad in you. We pray this in the name of your beloved Son. Amen.